0: with us for close to an hour, that's all the time we've known him. So I'm going to ask Greg Fell to come up here and introduce him and give you a little bit more on his background and who he is and what we can expect. Well, good morning. For
1: those of you who don't know me who are perhaps new to the church, I am the Rocky Mountain District Superintendent. For the Free church of America, it takes two business cards and two breaths to say all of that, <laughs> but uh, basically you're part of an association of 80 churches in the Rocky Mountain District that are together to work with one another, and I want to say thank you, as I do every year when I come, to this church for the support that you give to the district. Uh, you are doing so many things uh, among the other churches in the district. One of the things that you're doing is helping six other churches in their pastoral search, and I know that you're in one as well. But that's part of what the district helps you to do, and you're helping other churches with that. You're helping with uh, conflict intervention. We've got a couple of churches that are in some difficult time. Not churches here, churches in Wyoming, understand? Churches in the Black Hills don't have problems. <laughs> but that's part of what we do. You know, we step in when. when church struggling. In fact, the uh, past 16 months, all of our churches have been struggling. I don't know if you've noticed that there's a pandemic going on. And that's creating divisions, creating problems for pastors and leaders. So you've been speaking into the uh, 78 other churches in the district as uh, we've been trying to help pastors and leaders navigate, negotiate all of this. You're doing church planting that's a big part of the initiative that we do. So there's a whole lot that you're doing as part of that larger fellowship. And we appreciate you, we appreciate your support. I am going to be transitioning out of this role. I've been with you guys for almost 23 years, and uh, it's time for me to step aside. So Pastor Barry Vector is going to be my replacement. We're transitioning right now working together, and it's my joy and privilege to introduce him to you as a uh, your future district superintendent so pastor come and open God's word
0: thanks Greg it's uh, great to be with all of you today it's uh, still my favorite thing after being in a role of a local church pastor for 31 years to to move into this role to still open up God's word on Sundays and I hope you're excited today about getting in God's word that your heart is uh, open and teachable today from what God wants to reveal uh, to us. And I, as I always say to um, those that I speak to, I'm preaching to myself as much as I'm, I'm preaching to all of you, fellow disciple of Jesus and a disciple maker. And as I think about this uh, new role that God's called me into, uh, a lot of it has to do, again, with uh, the mission of the Rocky Mountain District. As Greg has faithfully been living out, uh, again, that mission within the churches and, again, reflecting what the New Testament shows as churches uh, uh, locally and house churches uh, began to uh, come together and the Holy Spirit was working. Letters were sent from the Apostle Paul to the Holy Spirit to, to speak to the church in those geographical areas. And in the same way, God, again, again wants us to be together in terms of our purpose and our mission and that's really what the Rocky Mountain District is seeking to do as it says on our again website to see a generation of disciple makers raised up and uh, in fact the whole uh, concept of uh, churches joining together being interdependent is something that the free church really values and so our role uh, is to resource uh, churches Especially in the intentionality with what God's called this church to do in this community, in this geographical area. It might be different, for example, than what you would see in an inner city in Denver, for example, with our churches who are there as well. And so we want to resource the churches for this intentionality to be able to help in the kingdom purpose of multiplication. That happens not only personally, but within your local congregation here, but also working with the other churches that are in the Black Hills area. As I, as I looked at your church's website and looked at your mission, you say it's to spread the gospel throughout our community, our city, and the world, to introduce every person to Jesus, and to help each other connect with Jesus Christ and connect with each other. That's a great mission, isn't it? And every person is a part of that. And as I've learned that in my own journey as a Christ follower, I've learned again that life is about relationships. And particularly where you're at as you sit here today in your relationship with God because that relationship is the most important and it will affect every other relationship that is in your life. The passage that we'll be looking at in just a moment, again, brings us back to that central truth. But I just want to take some time... As uh, the beginning of 2 Timothy 1 talks about, as Paul is reminding uh, Timothy, and by extension as Timothy would remind the church that he was pastoring, some very important truths that deal with this aspect of relationship, and particularly our conversion when we came to know Jesus Christ. And so I want to share a little bit about that uh, with you. I wish there was a uh, way in for me to show you today about uh, uh, my family. My wife and I, Lisa, have been married for 32 years. When we met and uh, through dating and so forth, uh, I was a public school teacher and coach in a uh, rural uh, community. In fact, I grew up on a a dairy farm with 60 cows and about 400 acres that we ran. We were a busy farm family. And yet, in the midst of all of it, um, my father and my mother were involved with our local church. My dad was the elder in the church, my mom was a Sunday school teacher. And so whenever the doors were open, uh, we were there. And sometimes for evening church, when we used to have evening church on Sunday evenings, uh, my siblings and I would be the only teenagers in. and We would complain to my parents, you know, we're the only ones there. And yet I'm so uh, grateful to my parents for instilling some very foundational truths that were a part of my life. And when I met my wife, uh, Lisa, you better talk about certain things. Like how many children do you want, a small family or large family? Well, we both wanted a large family, and um, as uh, we desired to have children uh, early on, um, we were told by the doctors we would not have children, and so we began to to pray about that, and even started looking into adoption about four years into our marriage, and uh, all of a sudden, while I was at seminary, uh, my wife got really sick, and they couldn't figure out what was going on, and went to the doctor... The doctor diagnosed and said, there's no explanation, but you're pregnant. Right. <laughs> and we have seven children now. <laughs> yeah. actually, actually, after everything started working right, we didn't know how to stop it. <laughs> so our five oldest that we have uh, range from the age of 27 down to 19. And then a sure way to have another child is to sell all your baby stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So we sold all of our baby stuff, and six years later came Amelia. And she's uh, 13, and then our son Trey, who's 11. So, my five oldest um, are back in Wisconsin, and my oldest daughter, whose uh, husband is studying to be a biblical counselor, is at Liberty University. Well, it's in the context, again, of a family that we learn a lot, right? It's why God talks about it so much. He even talks about it from the standpoint of being a fellowship, a family that we're together. And as I think about coming out of the pandemic and I think about the context I just came out of in terms of pastoring our church through that time with our elders, um, there is a reality of how much we really discover how much we need each other. And sometimes we don't value how important that is. And I'm talking about not only from the standpoint of just our, our local church, but the, the bigger body as well. And um, as you heard this morning in a reminder what's going on in our nation. And all the realities of what we're coming against. I really believe this is a great opportunity for the church. Because there's so many people asking questions. And in fact, in our community where I came from in Wisconsin, um, we saw actually an uptick in giving and people who were online and now come to the church and people who were not previously a part of our church now a part of our church. Because there's a stirring, I think, that's going on. People are hungry for something that's real. I think people are aware of how fragile life can be and how quickly life can change. Now, as I think about my story, and I'm going to share a little bit more as we get into this passage, um, I, I think about how my journey began. See, even though I grew up in the church, um, I was not a believer. I was what you would kind of categorize as a religious person. I knew all the right answers, I knew all the Bible answers, but. Really, my true God that I worshipped was athletics and sports. And uh, if you touched that, then I would be upset. Well, God touched my athletic career. When I was in college, I had run fast (coughs) enough to run at the National NCAA meet. And about three weeks before the meet, I started to get a lot of knee pain. And uh, the next thing I know, I had to stop running, and I had surgery, and I was angry. Because God touched my idol. I don't know what your idol is, but God will touch your idols because he loves you. He doesn't want to see anything come between you and your relationship with him. In fact, he wants to redeem the gifts and things that he gives you for his purposes. And that's what I discovered at 19 years old. As God was dealing with my heart and what I believed about life, and he wanted to move me from a religious relationship with him to a real relationship. And that would change my life forever. So on December 29th, 1981, when I was at a Campus Crusade for Christ Christmas conference with 2,000 other college kids in Chicago, the speaker was, was talking about the story of the rich young ruler. And before I knew it, I was on my knees before God. Think about how many years ago that was. And God radically changed my life because he showed that I was that guy, that I knew and The commandments, I knew what they were, but my heart was a long ways away. When God began to touch my idol, I realized I needed to surrender everything in my life And I was born again. And I began to think about what the purpose is of my life and why I was there at college. And even though I was there to get a degree, I began to understand that the relationships I had within the the classes that I was taking, the relationships that I had in the cross-country track team, the relationships that I had at my job were all for the purpose, yes, to go to school. And yes, to compete. And yes, to make money so I could continue in school. But the primary reason God had me there was to build relationships with people who did not know Jesus Christ. And it changed my focus and trajectory of everything that I was about from that point on. And by the way, my hope is that's a trajectory of your life as well as the church family. That you see the relationships in your life for that purpose. That people need to experience the Christ in you, the hope of glory in your life because they need him. I'd like you to turn, before I turn to to Timothy, to one other passage. So if you would like to open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 14. This was a pivotal passage, not only for the earliest followers of Jesus, but for all of us to come back to all the time and why Jesus was saying these words. He's talking about our relationship with Him and why it's important and and how we see our life. So Luke chapter 14, verses 25 to 35. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now those words that were given to the earliest followers of Jesus are given to us and mean just as much today as they did 2,000 years ago. Because we must understand that if, if we are going to live the life that God called us to, it must be in total surrender and submission that everything that God has given us, and whether it's our family As I had to count the cost of moving here at age 58 to Colorado, uprooting everything, leaving my family behind in Wisconsin, including my grandchild who's being born in August. (laughs) My wife and I to think about what is life about? It's ultimately about what Jesus wants to do with our lives. And it's the only way that we can live. When we lead our lives, we make a mess of it. We need Him to lead our lives. And that comes through surrendering. And by the way, there's no distinction between being a Christian and being a disciple. They are together. It ain't the same thing. That We are to follow Him. To trust Him completely with our lives. Now I'd like you to turn to 2 Timothy because it lays the background, again, of what Paul is saying to, to Timothy as he speaks to the church about some things that are important to us. 2 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 3 through verse 14. Now, the context here is that Paul realizes he's coming to the end of his life. So, the Holy Spirit writes these words to Paul's spiritual son Timothy to encourage him, so that he can encourage others as well. My prayer today is that you will be encouraged. The word itself, encouraged, means to have courage. Uh, If you're going to need courage, it means there are going to be circumstances and things that are happening in your life in which you're going to have to depend on God to rise above your fear or the reason why you might shrink back. This is what was going on with Timothy. And and probably if I were to spend time with with all of you and and to talk with you, before long you would share openly what some of your fears are and you would know what some of my fears are, that God does not want to control our lives. For us to really trust Him. I think we're dealing with that right now as a church. In the midst of this culture, how do we speak to this culture? It's a very fearful time in many ways. And so, 2 Timothy chapter 1, he begins in verse 3, and he says, I thank God for my service, did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, through which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know of whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me, and the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted so there is this deposit that's been entrusted to, to all of you who are a part of this church, this local body here. You are called to be a part of this for a reason. And this church would not be the same without you. That you have something that God wants you to contribute. In the context of what the mission of the church is, which is to make disciples who can make disciples who can make disciples, the question that we wrestle with as a district and that we ask you to wrestle with as well is how are you doing and preparing disciples to live in this current culture? To think as a missionary, because all of you, by the way, are missionaries. That is your identity you have been given through the Holy Spirit. To empower you to live the life of Christ in this culture, in this time, in this place, and wherever God has you. And whether you are in school, or at work, or retired, whatever neighborhood that you are working in, wherever you are at, God has called you uniquely, Because you're the one who has the relationships with those individuals. And so here, Paul is preparing Timothy, and by extension, as he hears these words and takes them to heart, he was to pass on to the church as well. The culture in which the early church was in is very similar to our culture in America. There is the reality that there is hostility to absolute truth. Intolerance. The cancel culture of fear that is around. The Bible speaks about fear over 300 times in the Bible. In other words, God understands that we're going to face times in which fear can control us if we allow it to. And If we do not learn to overcome fear by some of the truths that I'm about to share with you, then we will be short-circuited in terms of living out our mission of why God has us here or however long those years are in terms of making disciples. Now, if you look closely at verses 8 and 12 in the text, you'll see the word there is used, ashamed. But what does the word mean? It means to withhold or deny or be controlled by fear. How many of you have ever been afraid? Every hand better be held. Or I want to meet you. (laughs) And you can write the next book about overcoming fear. Now, one of the reasons why you go to seminary is you study the languages, the the Greek and the Hebrew text, to get the deeper meaning. And the the word here is in the subjunctive tense. Now, for those of you who are English uh, people, you know that that really means that there is a strong possibility or potential for that to happen. In other words, God is recognizing within the culture that we live in or whatever situation that is going on, that there's a strong possibility that we might give into fear. That's what God always addresses us in a way in which not only helping us understand that this is a reality, but also what the solution is to that. And in this context here, it deals with sharing our faith. Do you realize, uh, again, from the statistics, that only about 95 percent of people who claim to be born again Christians have actually shared their faith with a person? and discipled them and seen them come to know Jesus? 95. A very small percentage of people who are a part of the church today have ever seen their role in terms of, God, you brought these relationships into my life for the very reason for me to share the gospel and then to help them to follow Jesus. And we wonder why things are not going well in the United States. It's because we're not being intentional with that. Because many of us have given into fear or we believed a lie somewhere along the way, like I did growing up even though I was in the church, that somehow it was somebody else's responsibility to share the gospel with that person. When I was 18 years old, a life-changing event happened to me. Um, Again, I was never a part of the party scene in high school because if I was caught even at a party where there was alcohol, I would lose my eligibility. Now, if your God is athletics, you're not going to sacrifice anything. Well, after I graduated, I went to my first party. And I could not believe what my fellow students were doing. And in the midst of it, one of my friends had too much to drink, and when he drove home, he hit a telephone pole and he was killed. Mm-hmm. And it, it wrecked me. I was not the same for about a month. Because I had a knowledge of what my friend needed. Up in a divorce home situation. He started dealing drugs on campus, and I stayed away from all that. And, and I didn't know Jesus enough or even think it was important enough to even share with him. But God began to stir in me. Why was I afraid? What was going on? And it's because I didn't have a real relationship with Jesus myself, even though I had answers. And so when this text here is, it tells there's a possibility you might be ashamed, it might give into fear. And what you need to replace that with is proclamation. Now when we proclaim something, when the Bible talks about that, as it says here in verses 8 and 12 and in this text, is it's not only what we say with our words, yes, we need to proclaim with our words, but it's our lives actually backing up what we're saying. And for me, growing up, that was the reality, that was not true. I had words but I didn't have a life to back it up. In fact, I was so afraid as a as a young child growing up that I had an ulcer that was developing when I was only fifteen years old. I had debilitating migraine headaches. When I gave my first speech, I fainted. I just shook like this not ever happened to any of you. And I fainted on the ground. I was controlled by fear. And I needed someone to rescue me from that. And at 19 years old, I met the one who could rescue me. And so as you look at this text here, there is this reality that we need to learn how to deal with fear. The fear of man and what people think of us. And by the way, it's not just for teenagers that worry about peer pressure. It's our whole life, right? There's always these pressures to conform and and not to to live out what God has called us to live out in our relationships and our uh, community. And so there may be a reluctance on your part. So when we think about making disciples, as, again, they understood Jesus' words and what he said, he says, as you go, as you live life, make disciples. Well, the beginning part is that you have to to share your faith with somebody. The best way we share our faith is with our, our story of how God has transformed our lives. But we, if we don't have a story to share, maybe that's the point for all of you who are here today, is to say, do I really know the Savior? Have I really surrendered my life to Him? And if I have, then in the midst of that, God wants to use your story that is real and powerful, that includes the gospel, to share with those that God has placed in your life. So how do we do this? and How do we not shrink back? Well, I want you to notice verse 5 here. When Paul reminds Timothy, so my four points here, the first one, all this was introduction. No. It wasn't
2: all introduction. <laughs>
0: the first point is this. And you can see it in the text. It says to remember, reminding you. Remember your conversion. That's the first seed, your conversion. In verse 5, he speaks about this. And he speaks about the context in which Timothy came to know Jesus Christ. And for many of you who have grown up in the church, maybe that is your case as well. You came to know Jesus. You probably didn't remember a time where you really didn't recognize him or know him as a Savior. And that is some people's experience with God. Now, it wasn't mine. Even though I knew the right answers, I had to come face to face with the reality of my idolatry when I was 19 years old. And so I think it's important for us to always go back to the time in which we were saved. To remember what God has saved us from, and what he saved us to. Notice here that it's described as a sincere faith. It's authentic. It means that my words and my life match together. And when they do not, that when the Holy Spirit is speaking to me, that I repent of that, and I confess that, and I even make amends to people that I've hurt when I have lived independently from God and relying on his power to live the Christian life. He says it right here, it lives in you, it dwells in you. So Timothy came to realize that he had been saved from sin's penalty, being separated from God and not having fellowship with him in this life and the next. He was freed from the power of sin over us. When we can say yes to God and no to sin when the Holy Spirit dwells in us and we surrender our lives and one day we will be saved from the presence of sin for eternity. And that should excite all of us and want to see the people that are in our lives also free from the power of sin and the penalty of sin, and so that they have hope now and in the life to come, and that we want them to be with us in glory. So the starting point is your conversion story. Remember it. Remember it often. When you're afraid, go back again to the reality that you, again, did not give in to fear, but you surrendered your life to God and said, God, you have all my life, whatever you want to do. And it will fuel your proclamation for what God has called and the relationships God has called you to. That's the first thing. Remember your conversion. But there's the second thing here in verse 6 and verse 9. The second seed is your calling. Remember your calling, your unique calling. In verse 9, it's described as a holy calling. The word there, holy, in this context, means to be set apart. That your life has been set apart differently from what the world says life is about and what we are to give our life to. And in verse 6, it says, fan, fan into flame the gift of God which is in you. God has gifted us. He is a gracious God. He provides for us. How many of you have heard of the, the acronym SHAPE? S-H-A-D-E? S-H-A-P-E. Any of you ever heard that? In our church, we, we used it as a way to help our people understand their calling. The US stands for your spiritual gifts. There are over 20 spiritual gifts listed in the New Testament. And when you are born again, you get at least one. Or as I experienced on one of my mission trips when I was in the Soviet Union in 1985, I was smuggling Bibles in and then meeting secretly with believers who had been saved and following up with them discipleship There was a spiritual gift that God gave me at the time that I needed it at that moment because ultimately, God is in control. He knows who we need to talk to. He knows what needs to happen. And all of you have a spiritual gift to use. The H is the heart, your passions. What are you passionate about? Some of us have different passions for children. For some of us, it may be for people who are sick. Some of us have a, a passion to teach. Whatever is your passion, your heart, use that passion. The A is your abilities, your natural talents that God has given you. For example, if you've never seen Dallas's woodwork, his bowls he makes, incredible. What a talent to be able to do that. Um, or I think about Bonnie's ability to make food by the way those cinnamon rolls. Very good. You've got to bring those to a tablet just in case you've never done that. In other words, we have natural talents that we use to bless other people that God wants you to use. The P is your personality. Now, what's interesting is you read the scriptures and one of the things I love about the Bible is real people like you and I. People who failed failed People who are introverted, people who are extroverted. God uses all personality types. But this is what I discovered. When people would have met me when I was a teenager, they would have thought I was a shy, introverted person. I'm not sure anybody who knows me now would say that I'm shy or introverted. What changed? God dealt with the issues of why I was shy. My fear of people, when people thought of me. And when I began to base my identity not on what people thought of me, but on Christ who had freed me, I began to change. And so some would say that even my personality changed. But all I'm saying is is that God uses all personality types. And the E are your experiences. And by the way, all of your experiences. The good things that you've experienced in your life, but also the very difficult things. Even things that happened to you that you did not have control over. Now, Um, My wife was not able to travel with me. Um, At some point in the future, she's going to come to me with me. And and sometimes I might even have her share her story or testimony if it's appropriate. She grew up in a a very abusive home. She was mentally and physically and sexually abused as a child. And it really impacted how she saw herself. She was suicidal at times. And then she met Christ. And he changed her life. And now God has redeemed her past, even the bad things that happened, to use it for good. Because now she begins to meet with other people who have also been abused and to point them to the reality of where they can find their hope. Some of you have had those experiences that God wants to redeem. So they're not defined by your past to be longer. So, my question is what is your shape? And are you in shape? And how you get in shape is you use it. I'm a former coach, and I still work out, and I train to take care of my body. And then all the sports that I coached was making sure that the kids not only were in shape before the season began, but during it, but then even doing things in the off season to maintain their, their physical prowess. And the reality is for us as well. When we don't use our shape, it begins to atrophy. And not only that, you will lose your sense of purpose and joy. So my encouragement to you is all of you, in using your shape to to not only bless the people who are part of this congregation, but for those who are in the community, and for those of you who have learned that, that you come alongside others to help them to live that out and discover that as well. So remember your calling. Thirdly, in verse 7, remember your confidence. Where does your confidence come from? But it comes from what God provides. God is gracious. The text here says that he gave us. It is Christ in us. Over 170 times in the New Testament, it says, we are qualified by living in Christ, by Christ, with Christ, through Christ. Now, if the Holy Spirit is repeating a phrase over 170 times, you think that he wants us to learn it. And we do not have the ability in our own strength to live this up. And it's through surrendering and yielding to him that he has access and he begins to work in and through us to overcome, as Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. In the life I live, in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And so in the midst of that, in the text of what he has given us, I don't have time today to turn to John chapter 14, but write this section of verses down. John 14, verses 12 through 21. It talks about how God has empowered us. In fact, the incredible thing in that passage, he's talking about the Holy Spirit that is given to us to, to live the Christian life. He says that we would even do greater things than Jesus did when he was on earth. How is that possible? Not greater in ability, but greater in scope. Because of the body of Christ, each person who is a part of it doing the works that Jesus did. Romans 8, 35 to 39, write that down. Romans 8, 35 to 39, that God has loved us and nothing can separate us from his love. And that means when you mess up and when I mess up, that we remember what Christ did on the cross, that He has forgiven our sins, past, present, and future. And then He loves me just as much on the day that I'm sinning as the day when I'm trusting Him. People need to hear that message because we mess up a lot, don't we? Thirdly, God has also freed us from the power of sin. Look these verses up Romans 6 1 through 14. He has freed us from the power of sin. He talks about our old nature, our old self, being crucified with Him, that we can say yes to Him and no to sin. And so, God has given us all that we need to live the Christian life. And we need to remind each other about that, this provision of what He is provided. That leads me to the, the last point in this section here, verses 8 and 14. The fourth C is to remember your connection. Your connection to the body of Christ. You see, the Christian life is personal. It's deeply personal. But it is not private. It's not something I live by myself. I live it with the body of Christ. And I need you, and you need me. We need to remind each other often. That's why the scripture says, do not forsake the assembly of yourselves together, which is, which is why it was so difficult during this last year, during the pandemic. When we needed to be in each other's physical presence. and We needed to see one another. It's why Greg, <coughs> in the way that he has done his ministry, and philosophy of ministry, is to actually be in the churches. To be with people. And my philosophy is exactly the same way. That's how we impact I want to get to know you, that you would get to know me in any way that I can serve you, that your leadership would contact me, and I'll come up and help in any way I can, because I love the church. Notice in verse 8, this lived out. It says, our Lord, verse 9, saved us and called us. For his own purpose and grace gave us, verse 10, our Savior, Christ Jesus, abolished death and brought to life us all together. One of the values of the district, it's a value of the free church, is that, yes, you're autonomous, too, as you decide as a congregation how to live. We can't tell you how to live out some of your mission. You know uniquely how to do that here. But we are interdependent. We pray for one another. We support one another. In our, in our community, for example, there was a church where there was a moral failure, in, in one of the pastor's lives, and I was a part of the restoration team to restore his marriage and, and eventually to help him get back on his feet again. And that church really suffered. In fact, their budget went down about a third because people were upset. So, you know what the churches in our community did? We pooled our money together and we started supporting the budget of that church. How do you do that? How do you do that as a church? Because that's not taught out there. You do that because that's how the church is to live. Together. We need each other. We are to, to help one another. In fact, that church is back on its feet again. And there's uh, a wonderful pastor that's pastoring the church through that. And they're back where they needed to be again. In fact, reaching many people for Christ. And they would say the testimony is that they, that we live that out together. We need each other. And John 17 says that we would be one so that the world will know that he is sent. So remember again who you're connected to. And so I want to remind you again this week to encourage one another and yourself to remember your conversion. Remember your calling. Remember your confidence. And remember your connection. And so Father, again, I thank you for this congregation. I thank you for the leadership that's here. And Lord, even in this time of, again, waiting on you, we thank you that in the waiting, you've been very clear about how we are to be very intentional living out our mission, being a disciple and making disciples. And as this body of believers continues to wait for a pastor to be called here, Lord, I thank you ahead of time through your grace of how you're going to provide You know who that man is going to be. So I pray that you would give discernment and wisdom to the search team. That Lord, as uh, as this congregation is called to reach those in this community with the gospel, I pray pray for your blessing and your favor on the events of you in the community, even the the Vacation Bible School that's uh, coming up as well. So Lord, uh, thank you again. Because we know you, and we're family, that we're brothers and sisters in Christ, that we can just experience the blessing of that. And I've been so blessed already to meet some who are a part of this congregation. And I look forward to seeing what you're going to do. So Lord, thanks again for Your Word. Help us to remember it often this week as we follow You. And all God's people said, Amen. And one of my joys that uh, is to use... My gift, one of my natural talents, of singing, and I just want to sing a blessing over you. The Lord bless you and keep you, make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn His face toward you and give.